all, but ideally, um, as opposed to the kind of Q&A where you might ask one person a question, perhaps a question that draws on at least two people or that involves the audience, we can uh, move quickly to uh, a discussion of, um, that's going to be most productive. Thank you. Good afternoon. Um, I'm Jesse Erickson from the University of Delaware. I want to thank you for organizing this panel. I think it's a very important step forward. So um, I'm a black person, and I'm a bibliographer. Why am I as rare or more rare than the books sitting on the shelves in our special collections vaults? In other words, if any of you would like to speak to this question, how do you account for the clear and pronounced black, black representation within this community of bibliographic scholarship at large? That's the question. Um, me too, first of all. <laughs> um, though that isn't always obvious to people, which leads to entertaining conversations sometimes. Um, Honestly, I don't, I don't have a great answer for that. I mean, I think it's not unrelated to my observation about the makeup of my student body, uh, which is catastrophically uh, underrepresented uh, in minority communities, but maybe for related to slightly different reasons given the emphasis that we talk about. Um, Taking this because I feel like it's my obligation to get that done. Uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, all of the glam is incredibly white. I mean, this is a new statistical thing. There have been articles about it, right? For the galleries, libraries, archives, and museums. Um, I think for, I mean, the ALL has been talking about this for a long time. I see, I see this on Twitter. Um, I see lots of interesting comments from various um, upset and pissed off, um, you know, black, indigenous, um, people of color, librarians about this, but how few they are. Um, I will say, you know, as medievalists, we have recently started to try to track ourselves, and I think I gave a statistic last time I wrote something, we are half a percent to 70, like we're not even one percent of the entire population from what we can tell. So um, I think that's about cultural access. It's about a whole host of things and what bodies are comfortable in these spaces and you know the kinds of questions you get when you are in a library of a certain kind with special materials and things like that. Sorry. Yeah, I could have used my other um, This is something that I spend a majority of my time thinking about. I'm currently serving as the diversity chair for the new society that we're developing. And to be honest, I get doors slammed in my face constantly every single time I try to have this conversation. This is something that really happens to me once a day. Um, the thing that I was sort of trying to suggest at the end of my talk is that there is a problem in American history where music and visual culture is acceptable forms of um, genius for African Americans and literacy and writing is not. And so that is what has animated 
the majority of the African-American literary tradition, but how those books are then valued in the larger society and in libraries. You know, we have people like Frederick Douglass who we do applaud, but um, you know, other I had I've been having a conversation lately about, you know, what is the role of hip hop in critical bibliography? Apparently that's not something that's being embraced at the moment, but to other people it, it should be. And so I think the more we can have these conversations and really sort of contextualize how did we get here and why and what are the power structures that are perpetuating this. Um, one thing that some of us have been having a conversation about in relation to society is it's difficult to deal with the problem at this point. So I think things like dealing with, you know, our, our, our class project with Harlem and Harvard really showed me, hey, guess what? Fifth graders are really excited about Phyllis Wheatley and Du Bois. They actually care. So trying to make that intervention early and leaving our classrooms is really important because numbers get smaller and smaller and smaller as we go up the ladder in academia. And so making those interventions young and taking the time to do that is really important. I don't know if many of you know, but a lot of your universities actually will give you sometimes credits to do community projects or teaching in prisons, things that are not you know, readily apparent at the Cal State level and at UCs, for example, um, that's something that we are allowed to do. And so trying to look for those opportunities to bring in more voices and then people who might actually get really, really excited and want to apply to be a librarian or to you know, enter book history as a field or a profession. Um, but this is something that I would like to invite you guys to talk about, about what, what do you think can be done? That's not really an answer to your question. I have a sort of a follow-up question. I'm going to just travel back to Marquette. Um, so one of the things I'm struggling with, I'm teaching a history of the book course right now, and I wanted it to be very inclusive. And so I have, um, I'm doing units on China, I'm doing units on African-American, 19th century print culture, et cetera. But the thing that I keep coming up, uh, running up against is that as a white person and as a medievalist, I don't know very much about African-American print culture in the 19th century. And so I'm devoting three classes to it. But, and I, I'm trying not to be self-congratulatory about that though at all because I can't get away from the feeling that there's something tokenizing just in the fact that I am doing it in three classes as a white woman. Do you see what I mean? And so I was curious if um, you guys have any suggestions or strategies for incorporating inclusivity into one's uh, pedagogical practice in a way that somehow mitigates that um, sort of that uncomfortable fear of, of, of reducing something to a token, or maybe that's just a fear that as a white woman I'm gonna have to somehow deal with and live with. That's a discomfort that like I have to just deal with because of my privilege, right? But it, I don't know if I'm asking this question very well, but does, do you see what I'm trying to get at? I think the way to go is to center, the, to center social justice as the main frame of it all. So this is book history, so you know, the entire project should it be about these questions about race, gender, disability, sexuality, social justice, and then it's not a sort of appendage, an add-on, a sort of you know extra, you know, three classes or something like that, sort of an ongoing conversation. Um, and so 
I just did this with my Chaucer class, which is, let's face it, most um, canonical of all canonical. Um, but the class is now half, really, about, it's actually, um, the reading is half um, black women diaspora. It's about Chaucer through a global and post-colonial and refugee lens. It's about what's being, what the reaction is in Africa and London and the Caribbean very different Chaucer class, we're still reading Chaucer, but it's really about well, who were the first you know, readers of Chaucer and what do they see, and they see something very different than I think what we would usually discuss and things like that. We still go into the library, we still look at all the fun books, right? Um, but it's also a question of thinking through Chaucer being framed out as this national figure. And so how does that get sort of, those waves get worked out in South Asia, in Africa, in the Caribbean, in London at a certain point, right? Because he's not part of the higher ed literary canon of the 20th century. So the first readers of Chaucer are post-colonial readers. Can I say something to you? Um, I think that, uh, I'll say that the, the power injustice is just as much produced in spaces that are um, uh, uh, monochromatic, mono-identity, as there are places where uh, um, uh, inequality is right there in front of you, right? So I think that with our, our students, for example, to constantly have classes that only represent um, one kind of perspective and act as if that is a place that is not about social justice, not about race, that is not about power, is disingenuous. It's not actually teaching the thing that you're teaching. It's teaching a version of that. It's teaching part of that. It's not teaching the full thing or as much as you, you are. So I think that, um, for example, to go back to the um, Dorothy, like you mentioned earlier, Jane Austen. To teach a Jane Austen class that's all Jane Austen and not think that that is not a class that is about whiteness, that is not about um, patriarchy, that is not about empire, is is not serving Jane Austen's text. And so I think the same thing goes um, with a, a book history class. Even if you don't have um, a unit on African-American culture or uh, native books or um, a variety of other things, that doesn't mean that, that social justice and race is not been actually coming up all the time, even if that hasn't been being mentioned. I think also the teaching of the Jane Austen is this kind of neutral thing. This does mean you will attract white supremacist students. I mean, like this is a thing that um, maybe medievalists are kind of in, it's in our face, so we're, we think about this a lot. But it will attract white supremacist students because they love Jane Austen. They love certain kind of what's considered canon classic white topics. And unless you're sort of waving, I'm going to teach Jane Austen in India, or I'm going to talk about Jane Austen in slavery. They are going to think that your narrative of Jane Austen fuels their white supremacist vision of the past. Um, and so this is their MO. You can like read any kind of cultural, I don't even know if you can say cultural, um, thing in Breitbart, and this is what they do. Um, or if you think about Taylor Swift, because she never says, I'm a feminist, they love Taylor Swift. <laughs> 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 My name is Sian, I'm a postdoc at the University of Pennsylvania. Um, 
you know, in terms of how do we read the absences and how do we talk about absences in class and pedagogical uh, contexts, um, both in the, in the case of the South Asian archive where certain languages and um, certain forms and genres drop out, and again, in, in the, the Celtic example um, of, of, the, of the great, you know, um, uh, absences that, that are um, there in the, in the archive. I'm wondering if you thought about, um, number one, uh, bringing bibliographic studies in um, conversation, uh, especially in, in, in pedagogical settings, with such things as reception studies or maybe material culture, material or, you know, visual culture, and, and sort of uh, open it up to um, non-textual forms. And, and that sort of the larger question from that, and that, that uh, you know, kind of relates, I think, to the question of categories and what you know, sort of what categories do or not, do not or cannot do. That does it perhaps indicate that um, in the way that we teach or you know design our institutional frameworks in terms of periodization and disciplines, if that itself needs to be opened up, I mean, sort of in Austin, why not teach a class that's organized around a theme, and that theme could encompass elements from any period, language, culture, etc., and, and that might require uh, co-teaching and the, sort of the model of um, lone, lone teacher or lone scholar might itself need to be broken down, perhaps. <coughs> First of all, 
thank you for organizing this panel. Um, I think it's great that it's, we're kicking this whole conference off with this, partially because I think this term critical bibliography may be used a lot and um, maybe might be used uncritically. And I think that I, I think what all of our speakers have proven is that there is no critical bibliography that doesn't ask these kinds of questions, right? That asks what's not represented in the archive, or um, how do our uh, how do our, our disciplinary fields structure things in a certain way that prevent us from looking at questions of social justice. Um, um, but more generally, I think um, you know, aside from that, I think that I had this question about privilege. Um, the world of rare books is an incredibly privileged space. Um, to get to invite, I mean, one version of social justice can imagine making that space more inclusive. And yet, um, it seems to me that's a fundamental problem that can, in some ways, never go away. Um, how do you make students who are not from a particular economic class feel comfortable in a space full of wealth? Um, and the things go along with that, particularly surveillance, right? As a professional who goes to archives, I feel like I'm being surveilled all the time, and it often makes me feel uncomfortable. How do we make students feel comfortable working with these artifacts, um, either in the classroom setting or in the world of library studies? Yeah, I think that's, that's a great point. One of the reasons, you know, I think a little shout out to our archives, one of the things that I really love about it is that it is Actually, a pretty welcoming and inclusive place. Um, I'm also right down the street from the Huntington Library, which I absolutely love. Um, however, <laughs> but yeah, it, I mean it's a big but. I, I can take my students there and show them materials, but they're not welcome to work there. Undergraduates cannot research at the Huntington. Um, graduate students can't research at the Huntington. So, you know, part of this has to do with institutions, and maybe not all of the institutions that we ourselves are part of, but maybe those too, um, forming themselves to be more welcoming. I know I found that um, this is a conversation that is happening in a particularly intense way at the moment um, because of social media and somebody posted a really horrible experience she had um, trying to get access to the You know, I suppose maybe to their credit, um, that post has kicked off a lot of soul searching internally. Uh, but there is a hell of a lot of work to be done there still. Uh, and there, meaning not just on it, and meaning all of these repositories. I think obviously it depends on where you are, right, in the world or what kind of archive and library. But I mean, you can just start from physical location way the space is set up. Um, I mean, I'm sure people have, we all love telling the library stories, right? But like, I saw this manuscript next to the bathroom and my sister happy. Like, library, because we decided one day that that's where I was going to see it. Understand that. But, you know, we have all these, like, anecdotal stories. But I think we have to start with thinking about the space. I mean, we can complain, for instance, of the British Library for a whole host of reasons, but it's accessible, right? It's accessible and it's open to everyone. 
um, at all times. We've made plain that there are so many people we have to sort of gingerly walk to get to the bathroom, but it is accessible, right? Um, and then I think there's a question of the bodies in the library. I mean, that's the big kind of elephant in the room that we are kind of circling around. Why are there not more non-white bodies um, or differently able bodies in those spaces? And that has to do with the structures of these libraries, and that has to do with hiring, and that's a whole other kettle of fish, you know. Um, I have in a recent piece that's about to come out talked about this in terms of digital humanities. I can say this about medieval. Why is it we actually use the framework of a policy that the NFL uses? Why don't we have renewal if you're going to interview one, you have to interview at least one non-white person for X job? Like why why don't we actually do things like that? So I think that's that's the question. So until those things start to change, the space is always going to be uncomfortable. And going along those lines, it's not just about bringing you know people into that world and then trying to indoctrinate them into the specific forms of politics and respectability, but also just opening up you know what what it means to be this new community that we're trying to create together. You know, you and I are never gonna be able to burn down with the rich white dudes the specific way that they're, you know, looking for. And so the more people that are in the room and the building the conversation is important. I also kind of just wanted to please jump back to your question earlier too and say that that pressure is a great privilege and a gift. And I know that you know that. So sometimes just being honest in the classroom and saying, I feel uncomfortable right now. I want you to know that. Teachers are not perfect. Professors are not perfect. Um, but let's have this conversation. And I think building off of the idea about objects, that objects bring in um, you know, illiterate people, all kinds of other perspectives that you can pair with the texts that you're dealing with. I mean, one thing I, I say in a lot of times in rare books is like, OK, so who picked the cotton that made the rags, that made the paper for this book? There's more people that are going into the labor and the creation of this book than we're, than we're talking about. And so I think having, trying to tie all these things together, it's like just as uncomfortable as it might make you feel for a moment, just, just constantly trying to open that up. And, and the students will sometimes take the lead in ways that are really, really surprising. Thanks, my name is Priya Joshi, I teach at Temple, and I want to ask actually, not 
and I love all these questions about pedagogy. I want to ask a different question, and that is about how archives are collected. In other words, pedagogy always uses a bibliography, but what if there isn't? What if there are no lectures and no pamphlets actually collected? What if the history of uh, American writing, and this is a project that Richard So presented at Penn last spring, he kept talking about, is there an African-American idiom? And he did this DH project, but he had no example of African-American writers. And his point was, well, the archive doesn't have that. So to collect a bibliography of that, I have to read different kinds of newspapers and different kinds of magazines to first amass the bibliography to then do the kind of work I want to do. I'm just curious, uh, is there a practice where we can question the collection biases or limits? I really think it's limits. Because in the end, the scholar comes in and invents an archive and says, oh, this is missing. This tells me a story. This is how I'm going to recapture it. And I'm curious where the project of collection occurs. Is it the project of collection or the project of, um, of dealing with what is there, with what you can find, the essence, the sort of reading through the little glimpses and things like that? Um, I think actually this is a really interesting question for a lot of my colleagues who work on um, archives of marginal groups like Sada, like Chicano Fumi Raza, like this, you know, where is the ephemerality issue is really difficult, right? And also it's about personal archives. This is also this question about what was the point of Mercadu and why Native American groups do not want to hand over stuff because it's also about surveillance, it's also about documents, it's about government, it's about why would they, right, for all sorts of reasons. We, we, have, we can see reasons why they don't want to hand over information now, really, in our newspapers um, today. I think it's really interesting that it's a methodological question, I think you're asking. And as a medievalist, I find it sort of fascinating because though I am primarily a medievalist, I do kind of work with colleagues who work on race studies and 20th century American stuff. One of the things I say is, well, you know, medieval archive is full of fools and like they torched a bunch of it. So you know, we're always thinking about these methodological questions. This is not a this is not a barrier for us to like make our various arguments, theoretical or otherwise, with fragments, with little pieces. This is actually our practice, our MO. So why, I think that the question is, why is that even a barrier? It should be a barrier, you know? So we only have one fragment of X. We know that at least two or three other people randomly talk about this book, right? <laughs> you know? So we're gonna just go ahead and, you know, discuss, right? Or we might not even have a book at all. We just have three or four people randomly sticking it in some book list, in, you know, some, you know, catalog. And we will still talk about it, even though we don't actually have the physical item, right? We will just gather whatever fragments and pieces and, and run with it. So I don't think it's a methodological barrier, at least if you're asking the pre-modern people who, you know, things happen to our stuff, and occasionally we will will find a new manuscript or some. Usually it's some someone with death tax duties who decides to sell stuff in their library that no one knew existed, and then. We can like go. Oh my God, this existed. Or it's or, or it's things like trash, right? All of a sudden, we're like, oh wow, we found the Cairo Camisa, or people in the early 20th century found the Cairo Camisa. It's going to take us a 
200 years to sift through all that, but hey, we have a project. Um, we have unearthed the, the, what is it, the floor of German memories library in the 15th century, and all the fragment trash were sort of filtered down, so now there's huge chunks of random fragments from this ongoing memory library that's been around for 900 years, you know. We, we do not have, I don't think this is a, I don't think there is a, a barrier, basically. I think people should just run with it. And if people are, let us just say, weaponize medievalists, if people say you can't do this, just point to us and go, they do it, so what's the problem? Right? I mean, this is the part where it's occasionally useful to like pull the medieval path authority and kind of set them down and go, what are you talking about? We do this all the time, so, you know, like stop with this, you know? Five thirty. Is the reception? Okay. Five. Thank you, Joe. Five thirty is the reception.